of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 557. Jason and I are joined again by Jeffrey and Daria, who were previously with us on episode 545. This is about getting back basically in touch, in tune with the place where there is no lie, the creation, nature. Uh, with that, I think we're going to jump right in. Welcome, Jason. And a pleasant good morning. I think we're getting closer to having our new music from Dr. Dietz. Yeah, we took a big step yesterday getting some stuff uh, mixed and mastered. So I think we have some tweaks yet to do, and I'm not sure how we're going to implement it, but people have been asking. Actually, it'll be a while before people hear this now that we're doing one a week, but the flashback episodes have been actually quite popular, and we are carefully selecting what runs on Sundays. Anyhow, with that, welcome Jeffrey and Daria. Hi, bro. Hi, Jason. Hi, Rose. Are we going to just verbatim go down the points you've provided, or would you like to jump in somewhere particular? And by the way, before I forget, tell people how they can contact you, where they can find you, and your links online. Yeah, so our nonprofit is called Finding Polaris Wilderness Community. The website is www.findingpolaris.org. And we're on Instagram and Facebook at Finding Polaris WC. So Finding Polaris WC. Uh, do you want to give out your email? Uh, it's on the website. I would say if people are interested in following up on anything that we touch on, because there's some really good connections that people can make if they're interested in learning more on the website. So going to the website is the best spot. So I'm going to let you guys jump in and start where we will. But aren't we in an interesting time here just this morning? I heard someone make the comment, I need money to live. And while I know that's a common thing to say, the idea of it, I don't think we think of the idea of that expression about how far away from nature we are. And one thing I always like to impress, and I probably say it way too much, but I don't care. It's important. Uh, we were born with a bunch of rights and almost everything we do in this life is designed for us to trade those rights away. When you become a citizen, you give away God-given rights for lesser rights, for goods and services and basically benefits. But to prove that we are beneficiaries of this creation, the real hallmarks in my mind are that, first of all, we were given the divine spark of life. We're alive and we were granted that. Secondarily, and provably so, we have free will. And that's a big deal if you take time to consider what having and having been granted free will actually mean. But lastly, we are beneficiaries of this creation. And this is where people argue and tend not to accept that statement. And what I like to do is say, go outside and look up at the light of this world. That sun up in the sky that we basically take for granted most of our lives provides darn near everything we will ever need to be alive. It creates all the plant life, which is the foundation for everything else we need for the air, the water, the food, everything. And the point I'm making is there's no coin slot. When we go outside, we do not have to pay the sun for what we are given freely, thereby proving that we are beneficiaries. Anyhow, with that, I'm going to throw it over to you guys. Where do you want to, where do you want to launch from here? Maybe we can start kind of how we got here. Jeff and I both grew up in 
small communities-ish in Northern Ontario. So we were thankfully, and I think we're both super grateful to be surrounded by wilderness from birth, from a young age. And even with that, feeling the disconnect in just how we were raised with our families. And I would say we both, and I would argue everyone has this instinctual love and fascination and curiosity for the natural world. I think we're all born with that. And I think for us, that spark never faded, which is why we got to where we are now. I would start with your, your, your kind of origin story. Okay. Yeah. I could share. Hmm. Where do I start? Start with the camping. (laughs) Okay. So I didn't, I wasn't raised in this, like where I'm at now with it, but I remember one of my first core memories of loving spending time outside was when I was in high school and I was starting to camp by myself. And what came up for me over and over was every time I went camping, my dreams were so vivid and I loved that. And that's what kept me going outside. And that was my first like experience that wanted me to spend more and more time outside, even though I was quite scared. Um, at the time to go out in nature, you know, we have bears and all of that where we live. And I was terrified from a lot of, I would say, programming of nature, but yet I was dreaming so vividly, I kept going back and back. And then I ended up going to university to study environmental science, mainly because I just loved nature. And then, uh, yeah, I can laugh about it now, but I graduated with that degree. and. Yeah, I I learned, well, I mean, I learned some things, of course, but I really was not connected with the natural world. I still, you know, didn't have true deep relationship with trees, with tracks, with bird language, with, you know, understanding even the stars and like these basic, basic patterns of the law of nature, even though I, you know, air quotes, studied it for so long. And so when I graduated, I ended up hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. So I hiked from Mexico to the Canadian border for five and a half months living out of a backpack. I only drank wild water. I had a backup filter um, for a few sources, but I went out there like into the Sierras and into really beautiful landscapes. And I learned so much on that trip. But the, the biggest teaching after that trip was I was still feeling like, you know, I was hiking. The term there is, you know, through hiking. And yet I still didn't have like a true relationship. Like I still felt, you know, like it was a backdrop, you know, like a painting or, you know, whatever. And I'm just walking through this landscape, even though I was hiking. And so after that, I was continuing my journey. And uh, that led me to more primitive skills. I met my first teacher who was living out of a wigwam and he introduced me to friction fire, to, you know, shelter building and, you know, even just like primitive cooking and all these really basic interactions with the elements. And then that sparked my journey to then going to wilderness awareness schools for a more formal program of these skills that then led me to teaching drama outdoor school, which was another experience. And then, yeah, a few, a few steps later, here we are. I'm I'm back in my hometown and and presenting this uh, this nonprofit to then share what I learned with other people. You brought up so many things there. You know, I heard years ago. I don't know if it's true, but I've paid attention over the years, and I kind of feel like there's something to it. 
I've heard that people with green eyes uh, tend to gravitate towards plants and growing things. But you also mentioned the dreams that you had while you're out in nature. There are plenty of Eastern traditions that will claim when we're uh, when we're dreaming, we go to the astral plane. And it feels to me like we leave here when we dream. I don't know much more about it, but I guess I'd make the comment. Isn't it interesting that it's referred to as the astral plane, not the astral globe? <laughs> but the other thing is, is when you're learning to make fire, these are the things that we've been disconnected from. And the older ways of thinking elementally, fire is unique and in some ways separate from all the other elements. And it's almost alive in a way that it is thought about in the past. And just learning to make a fire friction-based or otherwise, it's a skill that most people can't do when they're just told, oh, here, here's the tools you need, do it. They, they You literally have to learn how to do it. And what I found is it's super, super frustrating and hard when you first try, but after you get the hang of it, it's not that difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I know there's no question there, but <laughs> yeah, that's okay. I think what comes up for me with what you shared was one of my passions of bringing people outside is that I see everyone having a unique like gift in lens and what they see in a landscape. So, I mean, I've never tied it to eye color, but that would be interesting to notice. But some people just have like eyes for like insects and they just that's what they see or like, that's what stands out to them. Some people, of course, it's plants. Some people, it could even be like birds of prey. They just have this affinity in what they, yeah, what they pick up. And that's why I love being outside with a group of people. Cause I see the strength in everyone bringing that, that gift of what they can pick up in, in a landscape. Cause of course, like, yeah, even, even in us, we both know where our strengths are and what we can pick up, but almost like a totem, right? Like maybe that's how people get their totems because they're in tune with a deer or, you know, a bird of some kind. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree. Yeah. I think of a story I was told by a mentor of you take six masters and you put them around a round table and you put a vase with a bouquet in there and you ask each master to describe the bouquet and each one's going to give you a different description because they're all seeing a different part or a different side of that bouquet so each one they're all describing the same thing yet they're all gonna have a different explanation a different viewpoint Mm -hmm. yeah you also see difference and people have affinity to uh, different strengths in their senses so like eyesight for me not my strength but i have other senses that are heightened and then other people myself yeah more of the i've got the the hunter's eyes, I guess you could say, like I spot birds of prey, I spot animal movement, but then any color pigment, like stuff like that, Daria will often see like, oh, do you see that red berry? And I'm, I'm oblivious yet. You know, I'll see like a, a small movement 50 yards away through the brush. I actually had a strong version of that with rattlesnakes where I was growing up because we spent a lot of time when I was young with snakes and I had the ability to see rattlesnakes because they blend in very easily and it came in handy a lot of times, but we were kind of overdoing it when we were young. It came to the point where who can catch them with their bare hands and the typical thing, you know, boys, boys do. But Jason, you grew up in Pennsylvania where there's a hell of a lot of outdoors. Did you do the camping thing when you were young? 
camped a little bit. I did used to go for a lot of walks. There's a lot of forest area around where I'm from in the Wyoming Valley, and we used to go to, uh, there's a lot of waterfalls and things like that. You know, uh, before we jumped on, I had asked you about the name of the LLC, and I thought that was a good story. We should get that in here. Yeah, so it was in, it would have been 2017, 2018. I don't even remember, that's so bad. But I spent, uh, with Teaching Drum Outdoor School, I had prepared for their Guardian program for a full year to spend two months in a very primitive situation. We were uh, living in wigwams. We had no matches, no lighters, no metal utensils. So we were, we had, you know, a wooden bowl and spoon. All of our fires were cooked from friction in a little pit. And we were eating, you know, an ancestral diet. And yeah, mostly we were sleeping with wool. I was telling Jeff, like, there was still some plastic (laughs) at our camp. We did have sleeping bags because it was in November and December. But it was very, you know, you had one knife. If you lost your knife, well, then you don't get to have a knife anymore. It was kind of that intensity. And we had no contact with the outside world. I I wasn't even able to write letters. And we had visits from guides, you know, randomly whenever they decided to show up. So we had no concept of time, you know, like no watches, all that out kind of is away. So you're, you're in a totally different reality. And in some ways, it was kind of like a reality TV show because, of course, there's going to be group conflict. And um, that, that comes up when you're living in true community where you don't get to choose who you sleep with. And actually, in that experience, they would put you in a wigwam with the person that they thought would trigger that person the most because that's where some could say true, true growth is. And, yeah, the name. So in that experience, I – well, everyone in the group – lost their name that they were born with that people you know have called them for years and then you're gifted a name by your circle and you don't get to choose it and so I was gifted the name Polaris and then a few it was a year or two after that experience I started the nonprofit, and I still had so many teachings of what Polaris is and myself and in some ways I believe it truly represents this this center point yeah, this true knowing and groundedness. And I'm still learning a lot about the sky clock. So I feel like I shouldn't say too much about it because I'm still in that journey. But that's what it is. It's a journey home. And I can relate to that in myself. I think most people can relate to that. And so I call the nonprofit Finding Polaris to represent that that action, that journey to that point. And of course, we both love the sky, which is kind of what led us to this podcast. and. Yeah, wilderness community was a representation of coming together with people focusing on outdoor skills or just outdoor living and and nature. If you were thrust into it, like say tomorrow all of a sudden you had to be out in the wilderness, do you feel like you could survive? And what would be like, is the knife, is that the benchmark? The basic thing that you would really want to have would be a knife? I would say I, I laughed when I first met Derry. I told my friend she's my apocalypse unicorn. And I would say, like in the in the midst of COVID, I would joke around and say, Oh, you guys are all screwed up. I'm fine. I've got Daria. But I think <laughs> I think she would echo this statement is we could point to a thousand different things, items, knowledge, but I think, especially with her experiences and my past experience, it's Almost mindset is the biggest thing you can have out there with you because if you panic or 
you can mind yourself through anything. You know, you can mental push yourself through anything. And I think that's a, an amazing feat of humanity is that, you know, you put your mind to it, you can overcome anything. So having the right tools and the knowledge to use it, of course, but also like having that. And I think we'll, we'll echo this with the rites of passage is you put yourself through these rites of passage in difficult situations so that when something does arise, not to say it's going to be a breeze, but you can deal with it as opposed to put into, into the fire and then you've never had that experience. And that's learning on the flies sometimes not the greatest if you've never been pushed. Well, it's a lot less scary if you've done something before. And if you're in an emergency situation, the last thing you want to do is your first wilderness experience be an emergency. So I can totally see right off the bat how practical this is. Yeah, because you could have all the gear. One, if I've seen it so many times, you can have all the gear you want. If you don't even know how to use it, then it's in some ways useless. And, you know, if you're trying to find a, a wild water source or even starting a fire by friction, if you're freaking out, you won't even be tapped into the landscape to even receive the knowing of where to go to find water. Or, you know, if you're shaking and freaking out, friction fire is oftentimes a reflection of your state of being when you're trying to make it. Um, So even with a lot of experience, if you're in that state and you're trying to get your coal, you could potentially not get it. So, yeah, I mean, there's so much. There's landscape, there's time of year, there's, yeah. I like to say, you know, someone who's done a a five-day water fast their ability to stay calm when they're hungry mm-hmm. as compared to someone who's never missed a meal or had a day go hungry. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, like you said, that experience before going into it, someone who's done a crazy fasting experience could see that and just be like, oh, I've done this before. No need to panic. Mm-hmm. Which maybe we can tie, tie that into right now with rites of passage. So one of Jeff and I's passion with the nonprofit is bringing wilderness or nature-based rites of passage. And we see that as lacking in our culture. And Jeff and I are both very comfortable to get to those edges of discomfort and to bring people and guide people who are ready, of course, they are saying yes to the experience, to that edge to grow. And so, yeah, with the nonprofit, we do that in different ways. We have a lot of variety of rites of passage that we do. And it all has the same thread of a a severance, a threshold, and then an incorporation. So the severance, you know, that can show up in different ways, but oftentimes it's, it's leaving this, you know, the comforts of the modern world and coming to the land. And generally Jeff and I will, will host our events in crown land or where there's, there's not even self-service. So there's this, there is this sense of if something happened, we can't even just, it's not a phone call away. And so even that, a lot of people have fear come up when they find that out. And then the threshold would be whatever that rite of passage is that's, that's pushing them to their limit, their edge. And then the incorporation is so important, but it's coming back to the circle and being held by a community, whether that's with the nonprofit or when you return home. And then, yeah, we guide people through that transition so that they can experience that because yeah, I would argue in some ways we have rites of passage, but they could be, we were talking about this the other day, it could be like having a kid, getting your first car, or like even graduating from a program. People are like, or buying your first house. That's like a rite of passage, but in our culture, in our culture. Today. Yeah. And I would argue that it's not, it's just normalized as that, but there's no 
no real result or transformation. And obviously, in, in some ways, it's very disconnected to uh, the natural world. These rites of passage, they're passing through a veil. So many tribes and our ancestors would use this to either eliminate the weak or set the adolescents up so that they can cut the ties with their childhood self and step into adulthood. And also by going through a rite of passage, they establish that, yes, I am able to be a functioning member of the tribe. Because there were some tribes, some indigenous people who would kill you if you came back and didn't see your spirit animal, or they would exile you if you didn't have a breakthrough experience. Because for these hunter-gatherer tribes, they couldn't have a, I hate to use the term, but a useless eater. They couldn't support an adult child with the tribe. They, they couldn't carry that capacity. So it was, it was a way to build the resilience of the tribe, but also help the adolescents step through. And like Darius said, like having a child. So there's these different rites of passage throughout our lives, but intentionally setting it up to build the strength of their community was a big part. And like Darius said, one I think of was drinking. So, you know, you're in high school and then you're just like, oh my gosh, you know, we can legally buy alcohol at this age. And in Canada, it's 19. So you're right out of high school or even in high school still. And then this rite of passage happens, you know, maybe you graduate, maybe you you can go to the bar for the first time. And these are like pseudo rites of passage that we've just adopted, but they're not healthy rites of passage that push us and help us evolve, become functioning members of society. So we still have adult children who think I've got a car or I've got a house or I've had a kid or like I've got the job, I've got the letters after my name on the piece of paper. And these are like pseudo rites of passage. And in our culture, that's how we see them, but they're not setting us up. They're not challenging us and setting us up to be functioning members of society. So we have a lot of adult children around us because they haven't been thrown into the fire and come out like the phoenix rising from the ashes and here to contribute and be a strong member of the community. No inherent value in these things. You know, it's interesting when you were talking about being able to, you know, I think that's where we get the idea. You've got to carry your own water. How many shaman ended up being people with a handicap of some type because they couldn't necessarily hunt. So they became spiritual leaders. But I really appreciate the idea that you describe for the rites of passage and the severance, the threshold, and the incorporation. The threshold is a big deal. And we don't really think about that in the West. Places like Japan, think of the Tori gates, you know, those interesting colored gates where that's what it is. It's a threshold. They're saying if you step across this, you're leaving the mundane civil space and you're entering a sacred space or something like that. But it's a similar thing, isn't it, when you're leaving society to go out into the wilderness uh, and get back to the truth of nature. There, at some point, there's a threshold there. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we we will all oftentimes build thresholds in in like either rocks or you know we're choosing a place on the landscape. We build it in some ways that there's there's meaning and symbolism of that for the participants that that walk through in and out when we have these rites of passage. Yeah, as a portal for the the Mm -hmm. physical marking that, you know, when your journey's done, you come back, you left from this portal, you're going to come back, we're going to kind of not debrief you, but we're going to kind of wipe you clear with an experience, and then you're going to come back into the circle after your, your time away from the group. It's 100% the mental game, right? It's, it's a mental 
recognition that if I take one more step, then I'm transferring into this other way of being. It's an interesting idea. And it's not an idea that I think we have very much like not in the country I grew up in, uh, but I have been in a lot of other places where there's absolutely this idea that there is a line right here. And if you cross it, then the condition or the situation or how you should think about it is different. And having a threshold like that to me also speaks to the mental acuity. Like if you give up, if you're in in the wilderness somewhere at any point where you give up, you're pretty much done. Mm -hmm. And that is entirely a mental activity. Mm -hmm. And surrender and give up are different aspects as well. Because on a vision quest, you may surrender because you're going against the, the stream. And once you surrender, you might feel the growth or get washed over with something new. Now, as far as people coming from a modern perspective, before they even get to the concepts of food, water, shelter, which is obviously what you need to take care of if you're in the wilderness, what kind of mental situation or struggle are they dealing with just being cut off from their electronics? Because so many people, uh, every every five minutes, they're checking their Instagram account or something ridiculous like that. Yeah, that's so true. I would say, to be honest, I would actually say people, when you're presenting them with an option... So all of our programs from the beginning have been like no cell phone for the participants and people actually don't struggle with it. You know, when you're in nature, when you're surrounded with people who are truly present, when you're learning, when you're, you're feeling the elements all the time, when you're outside, people actually don't miss their phones. I haven't seen, like, no one has ever said in a program, like, I'm excited to go back to my phone. Most of the time when we give it back, they're like, there's a little bit of a disappointment. They're starving for this, I think, on a soul level as well. Yeah. yeah. I think they absolutely are, but most people don't realize it. I'm just guessing here, but I would say that they are starving for it, but most people don't realize that they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd like to add in too, with the rites of passage, like this is our passion with bringing people into nature and reintegrating them with our plane and our, the cycles of this place and nature and all those things. But Let's not forget that there are rites of passage, like Crow said, traveling, traveling. Mm-hmm. Daria uh, went to India. She learned to teach yoga. Like that's a rite of passage. That's leaving where you are, your comfortability and going somewhere new. You're going to meet challenges there. Um, like in my life and background, I was a cancer survivor. I had childhood cancer at two years old. So I was kind of massaged by the medical system up until my teens. And then I had a, let's say a scare with the specialist. And at the same time, I was discovering natural health. And at that point, I severed my connection. Once the doctor's like, oh, you have high blood pressure. Let's put you on blood pressure medication. And I said, for how long? Oh, probably for life. And I said, well, I'm in this cancer center. Like I'm freaked out. Can't that just be white coat syndrome? My, my heart rate's up. Oh, maybe. And then at that point, like after uh, back and forth with the, the the cancer specialist, I just decided I'm going to sever my connection with modern medicine and I'm going to figure things out myself. I'm learning all these things about natural health. That would be like a rite of passage. Mm-hmm. Or later on in my late 20s, I discovered Muay Thai kickboxing. And after a few amateur fights, that's another rite of passage. Mm-hmm. I trained, I faced my fears, I got in the ring, I had hand-to-hand combat with someone someone who's been through the military or like there's other ways that we go through rites of passage. It doesn't need to just be going into the woods and finding someone like us. If you're in your hometown, you might even gone through rite of passage in your life and you didn't think about it because it was a challenging moment and you, you severed 
you went through the threshold and you came back and incorporated. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's, there's other ways that we do it in our society. And sometimes we don't think of it like that. Yeah. And I would also just add that it's, it's instinctual. We're all going to create a rite of passage in our life, whether or not we're aware of it or not. So Jeff mentioned a few people will do it with extreme sports and people also do it with, with drug alcohol use. Mm. And so, yeah, I guess. The outcome can be different depending, but oftentimes everyone's craving that, especially I would say when you're around, you know, 16, 18 years old and depending on the person and how they're supported in their life, it could either go one way or the other. Just like Crow, you guys trying to be the snake handlers and impress all your buddies, it's probably a very similar thing. You know, it's like, how can we push it and show the others in the tribe that we're, look at me, I caught a rattlesnake. No, it was exactly that. And it got pushed to absurd levels where it got super dangerous, but it was a right because the first time you do it, you are scared to death. Mm-hmm. And after you've done it a number of times, then it becomes, I can show off while I'm doing this is where the danger begins to creep in. But there's absolutely uh, the rite of passage because it's a thing that you would never in a common sense world think of doing you know, like extreme sports, someone might decide they're going to do some extreme thing. But after, you know, this is the whole thing with the moon landing that I was talking with Jason, you know, (laughs) what more evidence do we ever need than we haven't done this in 50 years? Once you do a thing, the rite of passage, it gets easier after you have accomplished it. And maybe that's not the best example for certain rites of passage, because there are rites of passage that are extreme, where it will never be easy. But I think also everything we're talking about correlates with the fact we don't have this most basic thing in our culture that almost every culture had, the bar mitzvah, the bat mitzvah, the quinceanera, the point where the adults in the room are telling the young, there's this line in the sand that you're approaching and you're not going to be a little kid after this day. And that is a rite of passage. We don't have anything like that. And I think it kind of piles on the complexity of the problems that we're talking about in a culture that doesn't really have any rites of passage at a level other than I graduated from school or something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Pseudo rites of passage or pseudo markers in our society of adulthood. Right. You know, no inherent value in and of themselves. People will argue, well, yes, it is. Now I can get a job with these letters. But the point is, is on the face of it, there really is no value. Whereas the child that reaches their 13th birthday, if that's the threshold for the culture, something in fact has changed mentally and for the culture as well. So not just the individual, but the people witnessing the rite of passage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Crow, you said scared to death. And I think that's so important in the threshold piece of a rite of passage. It has to be edgy. It has to bring up discomfort, fear, generally meeting some part of you that's ready to die to then move into this new version of yourself. And yeah, I think a lot of people, there's hesitation, you know, when we present these opportunities, these experiences with the nonprofit, but there's also this like deep desire and curiosity. And I think we can shift into now this, what we do presenting this opportunity for people to embody this law of nature. And we see a lot of, like, you can't intellectualize a rite of passage, like you have to go through it yourself. Mm -hmm. PhD piled higher and deeper. (laughs) Uh, We have a business mentor and he says, you know, you can go to Harvard and learn a 
a, a business MBA course and learn from someone who's never run a business. And I think it, uh, you see a lot of that is, and I started this way personally, so it's not a judgment. So I'm guilty of this is I watch the videos, I listen to podcasts and Daria would, we'd be on the landscape and she'd be like, oh, here's this plan. I'm like, oh, I've heard so much about it. And I feel like I, I know something, but intellectualization is a cop out for true knowledge and wisdom. And I think we have a lot of that is the internet has so much information. We, we're just basically a, a funnel taking it all in. But we're never experiencing that. So we're never embodying it, getting out there and getting the dirt time. Mm-hmm. You know, other, other than the rites of passage that, you know, I imposed on myself culturally growing up in America, the only one that I can really think of that actually is, whether I agree with it or value it, a rite of passage was boot camp in the United States Marine Corps. That is akin to a serious rite of passage. And it's what you're saying, because you're going to be made to do things that are damn difficult to the point where an average person would be thinking, I can't do that. That's not something I can do. But then there's the added kind of weight of the situation of the things that are truly mentally grueling, physically grueling and difficult. But other than that, I can't think of another example of a true rite of passage other than things like playing with snakes that we shouldn't have been playing with. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We don't really have it in Western culture anymore. Maybe going to college, but what does that even mean? Yeah, I I would say sports would be one. You know, that's one where men or young women, I'd say it's more common for men, but going to college to play football or being the varsity football team or soccer, like sports can be a good one for young people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's taken the place of our traditional, because I would say young people crave it and crave it so much that these things like sports kind of just build themselves around it. And then I would like for women, you have your menstruation and you also have birth. I just went through a massive rite of passage. And I think the beauty with all of these is that like no one can, no one can take that growth or that embodiment, that shift in yourself away from you. You walk with it. You don't even, the best rite of passage for yourself are the ones you don't even have to talk about because you're so integrated and the the confidence, the like your essence is so grounded that you don't even need to speak to them. And oftentimes in our experience, like those intense rite of passage, you're, you're actually not supposed to talk about them. Yeah. So there's supposed to be some form of, yeah, I guess like secrecy to it. Well, it's supposed to be a personal thing, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I heard the, the Lucinian mysteries. Elysian. Yeah. Yeah, supposed psychedelic thing in in ancient Greece would be like a rite of passage and it was like a faux pas to speak about it. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you're going to see God and all these amazing things, but shut up and don't brag about it. It's not to be talked about. You had your experience, keep it to yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, that's almost universally written about as one of the most valuable things that ever was to include the claim that Caesars wanted to go through it. Uh, It's named after the geography of where it was. Uh, the Elysian Mysteries, even to the point where there's accounts where the people running the mysteries, uh, and by the way, everyone was, even children, even slaves, everybody was yeah. allowed to go through it. But there's even accounts of Caesars being turned down because one of the rules is if you've killed someone, you can't do it for a year. Seems like a bizarre rule, but apparently they claim they they booted a Caesar out. But to get back to the rite of passage, you know, that was like the Marine Corps boot camp. Another interesting thing is what was the most terrifying or difficult for me was not 
true of the person next to me. For some people, it was the swimming or the water things. For other people, it was the heights or other things. And so what you notice too about these thresholds that we cross in a right is it has to find for the individual that kind of, as Darius said, that edgy part of it that actually makes the value memorable and imprinting. Exactly. And what we both love about the natural world or the wilderness is the mirror is so clear. (laughs) And so when we do our rites of passage outside, the landscape will reflect to you what shift or transformation you're going to receive. So it's really amazing to see that. Like you said, we, you know, you can have five people on the land in a walkabout, all those five people, completely different experiences, but what they receive, whatever happened to them in that moment in time is exactly what that person needed. Sometimes it's easier. Sometimes it could be more of a slap in the face. It all depends on where you're at in your journey. So our role is to simply create the container and hold it for the land to do the rest, the world spirit, whatever you want to to name it. We were mentioning younger people earlier. How much do you deal with children or younger teens? Yeah, right now, in the context of the nonprofit, we we don't, but potentially when our ch- children get older, we will step into that a little bit more. But right now, we're mostly working with people who are 18 and over. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah, just at a, as a, I think, infrastructure level, yeah. as we're in this city as it stands now, but I think as it grows, that is the Mm-hmm. The ideal is to have one of our mentors does uh, like father, son, mother, daughter, you know, a younger age, let's say like eight plus, and then they'll do a, you know, 13, 14 year old uh, rite of passage for young men and women. And then they will be maybe 16 or 17, a similar, you know, either vision quest or night out in the wilderness or a few days and build Ideally, this is what we want to build up to is to be able to offer that with everybody. But as it stands now, it's it's just the adults. Mm-hmm. Well, the great thing here is that if the adults are getting the experience they really need, they can then pass that along to children. So once you finally get that up and running, they'll be able to continue that because that's, in my opinion, sorely lacking in modern Western culture. Yeah, yeah. And we have we have homeschool parents and people reaching out to us. So it's it's an ever evolving uh, situation too. You know, it just occurred to me to add insult to injury. We've talked about the reading list that we all went through in school, at least in America. Jason, did you, uh, as part of your optional reading list and probably like junior high, was Walkabout a book called Walkabout on that list? Not that I remember now. So for people who remember, Walkabout was supposedly about a rite of passage. And I don't I I guess I remember a little bit about it. I don't know how accurate it is, I guess, what I'm saying, but it's supposedly a rite of passage. If I remember correctly, the people that we call aboriginals in Australia, when they get to an age, they have to leave and go walk around alone for some period of time. But to add insult to injury, not only did my culture not have any rites of passage, that was actually, I think it was an assigned reading list. So we were being shown other cultures that still had it. Mm-hmm. Did you guys ever get exposed uh, in school to walk about? No, no. Huh. I wonder when it went away. People in comments could say if walkabout was on their school curriculum, but we've got a few minutes. What's important to get in before we wrap up hour one? 
maybe we can touch on how we embody that in a day-to-day lifestyle. Yeah. So of course you can, you know, whether it's a rite of passage or just a walk in the woods, oftentimes people feel this disconnect that like they have to come back to this, you know, other life in their homes or wherever they're living. If you're living in the middle of a city and they're like two separate worlds and a big piece for us have been, you know, creating our day to day to always be connected to the wilderness, to nature. And so a word that gets put out there is this rewilding journey or lifestyle. And so, you know, when I look at that world, like rewild, there's, I think of like a return to the wilderness or there's like this cycle, there's this a revolution. We're going back. No, we're not going backwards. We're not going forwards. We're just coming back. We did the revolution. Now we're coming back to what works. And to this, to this way, I guess, with, with wilderness and yeah. So for us, when we, you know, teach, let's say, well, we can use water, for example, we teach people how to find their own spring water, also how to transition to wild water if you were in a more survival situation. And then also we teach people how to navigate the water going through their homes or how to bring that water to your house. You know, we carry our, our spring water right now because of where we're living. And we we bridge both of those worlds because it's really important for us that, you know, you don't just go out, drink wild water and then come home and then just drink the tap water. So yeah, our teachings have that kind of integration, you know, from the survival situation all the way to the comfort of your home. The bridge. Yeah. Yeah. We're bringing as much wild into our lives as we can manage, I would say. So wild food, uh, the spring water, wild like water, lakes, streams, we're getting out in the wild. And that might just be our backyard. Like my backyard right now, when I take the dog out at night, is like my favorite place to be because I can star watch. Mm-hmm. So there I'm interacting with the wild. I'm learning the constellations, the stars. I listen to Crow and then I go out. I'm like, oh, Pleiades, it's this. And I'm looking at the colors. So we're just trying to fill as much wild into our lives as we can manage and still be in the Babylonian system. Some people get a little intimidated by the the really intense experiences. And so we try to, you know, start people's journey with, you know, simple, practical solutions that they can start from home wherever you live, even if you live in the middle of a city. And then then people start building the confidence to then, you know, eventually come to a more intense experience. You know, having moved from San Diego permanently to the East Coast, there are some winter days that are so brutal and it never ceases to blow my mind. I think, how did the people back in the day survive this? And not just survive this, thrive. Mm-hmm. Even like I'll be driving into town and it is so brutally cold. And, uh, you know, I'm a sissy for cold. I grew up in San Diego. So the cold is the one thing that I struggle to try to make myself, you know, naturalize to it. And I have to some degree, but still, when it gets like really cold and I see the birds, it's like, how are they doing that? It's like below zero, the wind is whipping and they're out on the water, standing on ice. And every time that I'm put in that situation, I feel like I'm just completely dependent on artificial systems. I've considered the opposite after moving to Louisiana because in the heart of the summer here, it can be so brutal with the heat and humidity 
that I wonder how people 150 years ago, pre-air conditioning, pre-electricity, how did they go out and work? Because most people were agrarian at the time. That seems like it would just be brutal. That's perfect examples of challenge where putting yourself into nature. And like I said, nature could be your backyard. So, you know, maybe there's a day where you work just before your limit, let's say, Jason, out in the heat or crow, you know, you're going outside barefoot, shirtless in your underwear in the backyard and you're just you push to that edge and then you come back and then you build that tolerance. And that's what I think our our ancestors would do was they had the exposure to getting out there and exposing yourself. That's a great way that we tell people cold and hot exposure therapy you don't need to have all these fancy things or like think that oh i can't get this much time in nature or like oh i'd love to live a more natural life behind how do i do it well it could be as simple as just exposing your body to the elements go out when it's raining and get the you know dance in the rain in your backyard and then go inside after five minutes you know the example of that from natural process would be tempering right those mm-hmm. people were tempered to it you know it's interesting when i used to come here uh, as a kid, my father was a teacher. So every summer we got off and we came here and they always, in San Diego, there's no humidity back in the day. And we'd get here and all the adults would be complaining about how humid it was. I never knew what the hell they were talking about. And they would try to explain it to me. Can't you feel the water in there? And I was thinking, what the hell are these people talking about? I, I was completely unaffected by it. I was ready to go out and play or do whatever I was going to do. And all the adults are just like, oh, this condition that I can't even recognize is so brutal that, you know, we're, we're going to stay inside or something like that. And I think it's literally that had I been born here and come up in this weather, I think I'd be tempered to it a bit more. Mm-hmm. And one thing I learned when I was in that like primitive camp was that because we didn't, so let's use the rain, for example, if it was a rainy, cold day, we're all hiding just like the rest of the animals on the landscape. We don't have rain gear in that situation. So we weren't going to go out and get, you know, I only had two pretty much like wool suits. I wasn't going to risk getting one completely wet. So we literally huddled in the wigwam if it, until the rain stopped, then we would just go out to like pee or poo or to grab food so we could snack inside. But I think a part of it too is when you have things to do or places to be at specific times, then you're going out in any single weather situation. But when you, when all of that dissolves, you're, you're working, you're responding to weather and you're not necessarily going out all the time in whatever weather is out there, if that makes sense. Like sometimes, sometimes we do things and I'm like, we would never do like, it's just like, it's such a silly situation. Like if we're out in like the heat of the day or something like you would hide, just like, what are the animals doing on the landscape? And, and when you don't have all the, the comforts to go back to or the comforts to wear, then, then you start mimicking what the, what the animals are doing too on the land. Well, that's the way it would have been years ago. You would have responded accordingly. Mm-hmm. Well, there's your example in truth and in, in nature, even even like the military designing things. What do they do now? They copy dolphins and other things because that's where the truth resides. But we've got to wrap up hour one. Can you guys please tell us one more time where people can locate you online before we prep up for hour two? Yeah. So we're at findingpolaris.org. 
We're on Facebook, Instagram, I believe TikTok, not so present there, but we're constantly uploading stuff at Finding Players WC on all those uh, socials. We do appreciate the people who reached out. We had a couple emails and phone calls with people who reached out uh, with the the birthing podcast. So we appreciate you, Crow, and everyone reaching out for that. Uh, you can see us on our website. Send us an email if you've got any questions about the, the birth or rewilding. And we've got uh, plenty of stuff going on to the website for e-courses, just so people can kind of get started without having to visit some primitive skills camp or, or school. We're going to have some really basic fundamental stuff to get people started on the rewilding journey so they're not getting a pile of books about how they lived a thousand years ago and trying to integrate that we have some modern takeaway stuff that people can get for really cheap all right so we're going to wrap up hour one of episode 557 uh just a reminder uh jeff and daria were previously on episode 545 which was about natural birthing natural bringing new life into the world, which is a big deal. It's among the biggest deals we copy, but let's close with this idea because I think it fits. And I think I've mentioned it before, but these are the kind of movies that I like. I think the movie is called Black Robe, but I'm not sure. It's about Jesuits coming to North America for the first time. And there's a few scenes that really show the stark reality between what's about to happen. These people bringing all these man-made sciences and systems into peoples that are a hundred percent living in truth in nature one of the scenes has to do with writing and how the native people here are blown away they think it's black magic basically interesting that we call it spelling but there's this one part where a european guy wanders into the woods and gets lost and these indians find him and they're laughing at him and talking to each other. And then they ask him, what the hell's the matter with you? Didn't you pay attention to the trees as you walked in to the forest? Well, what are you like two years old? And it's interesting because even had he paid attention to the trees from his cultural background, it would not have made him any less lost. But with that, we're going to wrap up hour one of episode 557. Hour one is free to everybody at crow777radio.com. That is C-R-R. OW777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full episode. They get access to all the forums. They can create forums. They have access to all the comments under every episode, and they can watch the film Shoot the Moon, covering all my telescopic work, the sun we don't see, lunar waves, and all that anytime they want. Um, it's got 10 awards in the world now. With that, we're going to prep up for hour two, which has an open end. It goes as long as it will. And uh, I hope to see everyone over logged in as a member for hour two. There it is, man. I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers.
belief is the enemy of knowing.